Well, good morning, church. So good to see each of you this morning. So good to worship together. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to uh, celebrate the 504th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation together. Now, the reason that we do that is because the Reformation was a time of gospel recovery, and we are celebrating the gospel and looking back at what God did on that day when Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg. What happened is as Luther was studying the scriptures, he realized, first in his own heart and then in the church at large, how corrupt the church, the Roman Catholic Church at that time had become. And in studying the scriptures, he called the church back to the scriptures and back to all the scriptures teach. That's what Luther did 500 years ago, but Luther and the other reformers were not the first reformers in the history of God's people. About 600 years before Jesus appeared on this earth, there was a young king in Judah named Josiah. He took the throne when he was eight years old. You can read about him in 2 Kings 22 and 23. His father was Amon. Amon was a wicked king, and during Amon's reign, he led Israel into idolatry, and the temple fell into disrepair, and believe it or not, the law itself was lost in the temple shows the state of Israel at that time. And so as Josiah, his son, reigned in his place, as he grew up, he uh, at one point called for the temple to be repaired. And, and as they were repairing the temple of God, they came across the law, covered in dust and cobwebs, I'm sure. And they came across this book, the law, and they brought it to Josiah. We said, we found the book of the law. And Josiah opened it and read it. And just like Luther... 2,500 years later, when Josiah read the law, he realized how corrupt Israel had become and how far they had strayed. And so the scriptures exposed the corruption, and then Josiah called God's people back to the scriptures and led God's people in reform. This is what Reformation is really all about. The scriptures expose how we've gone off the rails, and then the cry of reformers is back to the scriptures. Well, I say all that because when we think about Jesus then coming on to the scene, coming into his own uh, era of corruption in the land of Israel, the people had once again lost their way. And in this situation, what do we see Jesus do? Well, Jesus did something that no reformer, old or new, would ever do. Jesus didn't merely cry back to the scriptures though he did teach the Old Testament scriptures faithfully, but his, his main cry was not, back to the covenant. No, his main cry was, I'm here. Can you imagine if Luther had nailed on those 95 theses? Theses number one, Martin Luther's in town now. Pope, everyone come my direction. No, what if Josiah had said, guys, we, we've lost our way, I'm the answer. No, that, they wouldn't do that. Reformers don't do that. Reformers point away from themselves and say, back to the scriptures. But Jesus came and he said, I'm here. Jesus said his presence was changing everything. He didn't call Israel necessarily back to old covenant faithfulness. He called Israel to something new. He called Israel to himself. Here's what we see. Jesus wasn't a reformer. Jesus didn't come to reform Judaism. Jesus came to transform it forever. Jesus didn't come to reform worship. Jesus came to be worshipped. He didn't come to reform worship. He came to be worshipped. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. 
We are in a series through Matthew following the fulfillment, and we're in a context right now, last week and this week, where we see that people are beginning to wrestle with how Jesus was different. Jesus was different than any religious figure that they knew. Last week we saw how Jesus was different in the fact that he ate with tax collectors and sinners, something that the Pharisees would never have done because it would have made them unclean. Well, this week we see another difference, is that Jesus and his disciples did not join with the rest of Judaism in the regular fasts that were called for. Our text this morning is Matthew 9, we're looking at verses 14 through 17. Let's read this passage, Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Just like last week, this week, we see uh, people come to Jesus with a question. And the question is in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now before we get into the question about fasting, let's think about who's asking this question. What does it say? The disciples of John came to him. So, you know... When I'm reading the, the Gospels, I'm accustomed to generally think like good guys and bad guys, right? So if I, if I come across Jesus, good guy, right? And Satan, bad guy, that's very obvious, right? Uh, you come across John, good guy, John the Baptist, and his disciples, good guys. Come across Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, those are bad guys, right? And, and so I just want to bring that to the surface first, that we think along these lines. Here's the disciples of John coming. So John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. John the Baptist was, was the forerunner of the Messiah. John the Baptist said, listen to him. He's the one that we should be following. So these are his disciples. We also know that John the Baptist was no friend of the Pharisees. John the Baptist uh, condemned the Pharisees as hypocrites. He called them whitewashed tombs and snakes and said that the axe is laid to the tree and it's going to be cut down. So the Pharisees and the disciples of John are not buddy-buddy, right? And, and yet the disciples of John come to Jesus and they ask, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Which is so interesting because it shows us that even though the disciples of John and the Pharisees were so different in so many ways, on opposite sides of the, of the aisle, really, they, they, they were all Jews. And they were all seeking to worship God the way that he had prescribed, and here they have something in common. They all participate in the fasts. And yet, Jesus and his disciples did not participate in the fasts. And, and it just shows how different Jesus was. He wasn't just different from the Pharisees, he was different from everybody. He was different from, from the good guys, right? He was different from every, he was He was doing something that was totally just defying expectations in his ministry. And so the question is about fasting. They come and say, why do we fast? And why do the Pharisees fast? And yet your disciples don't fast. You don't teach them to fast. They're referring not just to fasting generally. Uh, it's not necessarily that the disciples and Jesus never would have fasted. We know Jesus himself fasted before his temptation. But at this time in Judaism, the, the, the people fasted, pious Jews fasted every Monday and every Thursday. Every Monday, every Thursday, 
the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the disciples of John, these pious Jews, would fast. And though this wasn't prescribed in the Old Testament, they would fast, why? Primarily as a sense of mourning. As a sense of mourning. What were they mourning over? They fasted to mourn over their sin, to mourn over the fact that they were sinners and needed a Savior. They fasted to mourn over their suffering under the Roman Empire, oppressed by a foreign power. And ultimately, they fasted as an expression of mourning that God's promises were unfulfilled. They were fasting because because the scriptures were filled with these glorious promises about what God would do, and yet, here they were, and nothing had happened yet. And and, and so every Monday, every Thursday, not just the Pharisees, but, but all pious Jews would fast in these ways. And yet, Jesus' disciples didn't do it with them. You almost wonder, given last week's text, if they were feasting with tax collectors and sinners while all these people were fasting. Why don't you fast? Why don't you join us? Well, Jesus gives two answers to this question that we're going to see this morning. Why don't you and your disciples fast? Here's Jesus' first answer. You don't fast at a wedding. You don't fast at a wedding. Look at verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So Jesus loved using images and pictures in his teaching. He never just answers someone directly, right? He, he gives an image. He gives a picture. He wants people to think about the truth he's giving. And so that's what he says. He says, can, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He says, there's a wedding going on. Why don't you fast? Because you don't fast at a wedding. You feast. You celebrate. You don't fast and mourn. Now, whose wedding is it? Whose wedding is, is happening here? And look, it's Jesus' wedding. Why don't your disciples fast? Can the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is with them? He's saying, my disciples are the wedding guests, and they're here with me, the bridegroom. And that's why we're not fasting. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. And here we need to see that Jesus is making an unbelievable claim about himself. Jesus is so good at this. Jesus was so good at, at saying huge things about who he is for those with ears to hear what he was saying. And the Old Testament is filled with images of God referring to himself as the husband of his people. And one of those that's really significant is Hosea chapter 2. It's worth turning back together. Look at Hosea chapter 2 with me. Keep your place in Matthew. Jesus was in Hosea already. He referred to this last week. We saw him say, go go to Hosea 6 and see what it says. Well, here we see in Hosea 2 this image of a bridegroom, this image of a husband coming, and it teaches us what Jesus means when he says, there's a wedding going on, and I'm the bridegroom, and it's not a time for fasting. Look at what he says in Hosea chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Hosea 2, beginning in verse 14. This is the Lord speaking to his unrepentant people, Israel. It says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land. I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. 
I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It's the Lord speaking to his people Israel, and here is Jesus saying, you don't fast at a wedding. You don't fast at a wedding because, because there was a wedding going on. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the husband. I am the Lord who has come to my people. Why would you fast? I'm here. That's what he's saying. I'm here. I've arrived. You don't need to fast anymore. You're fasting because God's promises are unfulfilled. Well, here I am. Stop fasting. Celebrate. I've arrived to bring my people back to myself as my bride. That's what Jesus is getting at. And, and it's just a beautiful picture of Jesus coming as a husband in love to his people. I am God in the flesh who has come to reclaim my bride. This is not a time for mourning. This is a time for celebration. And then look what he says next. Surprising. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. What does Jesus mean by this? He's going to be taken away from them. Well, the disciples couldn't have known it at the time, but Jesus was referring to the fact that, that the bridegroom had come, but he wasn't going to stay on the earth forever. He was going to come, and he was going to die, and he was going to rise, and he was going to depart back to the Father. I need to stop here and think about this. Think about the person and work of Jesus. He came into the world as a bridegroom, comes to his bride, but here's the problem, is that he's coming to a people who were adulterers. He's coming to a people who had gone after other gods. He's coming to a people who had committed spiritual adultery and their idolatry. A people who were unfaithful to him. The bridegroom comes to this unfaithful people, and what does he do? Does he call off the wedding? Does he send her away? No. No, to this unfaithful people, this adulterous people, the bridegroom, as Ephesians says, he loved her and gave himself for her, that he might present her to himself without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. He laid down his life to cleanse her from her spiritual adultery, from all of her filth and idolatry, so that he would bring her back to himself as a cleansed and pure bride. This is the love of Jesus for his bride. This is the love of the bridegroom for the church, for his people. This is why he was going to depart. And he went and he ascended to the Father, and right now he is preparing that bride. He's preparing us. He's preparing his bride for himself for that day when he says, I will come again, and you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will feast again. Right now, we do fast. He says, then they will fast. We fast because this bridegroom has come, but he's not here right now. And we live in a broken world, but we fast with joy and not with mourning because we know he's come and we know he's died for our sins and risen again. And he's coming again. And we're looking forward to that feasting. And we're fasting now because we look forward to that feast one day when he comes again. And listen, I want to make an application at this point. You're invited. 
you are invited to that feast. You are invited to be part of the bride of Christ. You might be saying to yourself, Jesus could never love me. Jesus could never love someone who's done the things that I've done, who's lived the way that I've lived. And, and, and just look, he, he does. He loves you. He, he sees your filth. He sees what you've done. He sees your idolatry. He sees your adultery. He sees your rebellion. And he lays down his life to cleanse you and bring you to himself as a pure bride. He loves you and he invites you to this feast if that's you this morning, receive the love of Christ. Believe it. Believe he loves you. Believe he's made a way for you to be cleansed. Trust in him and receive the love of Christ this morning. Jesus says, we don't fast because you don't fast at a wedding. I'm the bridegroom who has come for my bride. And then what did he do? He laid down his life to sanctify her for himself. This is the first answer to the question. Why don't you fast? Because you don't fast at a wedding. Now, I've been married to Candace for 10 years now, and here's the thing about marriage. It changes everything. It changes absolutely everything about your life. Right? We all agree that we're married. Like, everything's different. Right? I mean, the day I went from being single to being married, my relationship with my family changed. Just was different from then on. The way I thought about work and money changed. The way I spent my time changed. The, the food I ate changed a little bit. Everything changed. The decorations in my living space changed. It's like, why can't I have this gator's blanket on this couch anymore, right? <laughs> Everything changed that day. And I think this reality that, that once you're married, everything changes is actually what connects Jesus' first answer to his second answer here. They're, they're asking about fasting, and Jesus is saying that that. The bridegroom is here. The promises are being fulfilled. We don't, you don't need to fast right now because I'm, I'm here. And, and now that the bridegroom has come, everything's changing. Everything's different. Look at what he says. The, the, the second answer gives us the wedding changes everything. This wedding changes everything. And look at verses 16 and 17 again. He says, No one puts a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So Jesus is stacking up the, the pictures for us this morning, right? And here he gives two closely related illustrations. And, and just let's just work our way into these illustrations here, okay? The main point of both of these illustrations is this. I'm the bridegroom, I'm here, and nothing can stay the same anymore. I'm the bridegroom, I'm here, nothing can stay the same anymore. And then I want you to just, as we think about these illustrations, I want to ask you to think in, in categories of Old Covenant and New Covenant. Just from here on out this morning, think Old Covenant and New Covenant. Whatever else I say, be thinking about those two things. Because Jesus is speaking to Jews who were operating under the assumptions of the Old Covenant. And, and he's speaking to them and he's, he's telling them the New Covenant is here. The new covenant is coming. The old covenant is passing away. I'm here. The bridegroom is here. I'm bringing in the new covenant. And it's time for the old to give way to the new. That's the main way Jesus is thinking here in these illustrations. But now let's, let's dive into them. The first illustration. Again, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. So 
Pretty simple illustration, right? You've got an old piece of clothing, and there's a tear in it. And, and you want to patch it up. But Jesus is saying that you wouldn't put a, a new, fresh piece of unshrunk cloth on that patch. Why not? Because that unshrunk cloth is going to shrink. And when it does, what's going to happen to the garment? It's going to pull at that garment, and it's going to be torn worse than it was in the first place. That's the picture. You don't, you don't do that. Now, what does this old garment stand for in this context? I think we could say that it stands for religious works within Judaism. It stands for old covenant works, such as fasting, for instance. But notice, the garment's not just old. It's torn. It's not, it's not just an old garment. It's a torn garment. It's, it's a garment that's... that's Broken. It's a garment that's not functioning right. And, and I think Jesus is saying something about the Jews of his day that their practices were broken. Their practices were torn. The way that they went about things like fasting was in disrepair. And again, here's, here's the thing, is, is that they might look at Jesus, this master teacher, and say, well, here comes a reformer, right? Here comes someone who's going to, to help us get right again so that we can do all this the right way. And Jesus is saying, no, no, I'm not just a patch to mend your garment. I'm not just something that you can sew on and then keep, keep doing what you're doing. No, your garment is torn beyond repair. There, there, there's no fixing this. It's time to get a replacement. Have you ever had that sweatshirt or sweater that you just, you loved it and you just don't want to say it's time, right? Like you, you, try, you try to sew, you try to, you know, it just keeps coming in. No, it's time to get a new sweater, right? It's time for a new garment. Jesus isn't just a patch for our religious coverings. Jesus is the covering. Jesus is the new garment. We're all prone to this. We, we believe instinctively that we must earn our way to God with righteous works, such as fasting, right? And we try to clothe ourselves with our own righteousness. But the problem is, and we know it, is that our righteousness isn't enough. We know that our own righteousness is torn and broken. We have a tear in our garments of self-righteousness. But here's the problem. Here's what we do, is we think that Jesus is, has come to be a patch on that tear, we think that Jesus has come just to, just to fix us up a little bit and send us on our way. And so we continue living primarily as if righteousness depends on us. We live primarily as if we need to earn our way to God. And when we fail, we say, well, so glad that I have forgiveness in Jesus. And then we go back to trying to earn our way again. No, that, that, that's not the way to live. That's not, that's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus calls us to do. He doesn't call us to do everything we can, and then for that 10% that we don't get, here's the patch to cover that. No, that's, that's not the kind of righteousness we need. That's not, that's not right. Jesus says you need a whole new covering. And I'm here to replace your tattered and torn righteousness completely. I'm going to ask you this morning, are you relying totally on Jesus as your covering? Are you relying completely on Jesus as your covering before God, where you say that it's his righteous works alone that I stand in? 
Or are you saying, I, God, I, I've, I've been a good person, and I, and I go to church, and I live this way, and I'm so thankful for Jesus because he, he covers the parts of me that aren't so good. No, nothing's good. Nothing's good about you. You don't have anything to claim before him. You don't need Jesus to be a patch on your otherwise good garment. No, it's old, it's tattered, it's in disrepair. You need, you need Jesus to cover you completely. He has come to give us the total covering of his righteousness. This is, this is the first thing he's teaching, that the, the old is giving way to the new. This old broken system is giving way to a, a new covenant with a new righteousness that is a gift to you. We must rely totally on Jesus as, as our righteous covering before the Lord. And then there's this second illustration. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Now, we don't put wine into wineskins anymore. I don't think anyone would like that. But back in the day, they put wine, skin, wine in wineskins. And this was an animal skin that they turned inside out, and they cleaned, and they prepared a certain way to hold wine and keep it fresh. But the thing about these wineskins were that they were not reusable. You know, you go to Starbucks, and they've got these new reusable, disposable cups. <laughs> you know, you use it like 10 times, and then it's done. No, these wineskins were not reusable, all right? One-time use only, okay? And, and Jesus is saying, if, if you put new wine in this Old wineskin, because of the process of fermentation on that wineskin, what's going to happen the next time is when you put that new wine in, it's going to burst. It's going to, it's going to tear apart and break open, and all your wine is going to spill everywhere. You're not going to get any of it. What you need for new wine is a new, fresh wineskin. Now, again, that's, that's the picture, a common picture in Jesus' day, but what is Jesus talking about? <laughs> if you're like me, you're thinking, what, what is going on with this text? It's Weddings and cloths and wine. And so, so let's, let's get into this illustration now, right? Consider each element. Help me to think about just, just each element of this final illustration. There's old wine and old wineskin, and there's new wine and there's a new wineskin. And let's just label these, okay? So what is the old wine? The old wine stands for the grace of the old covenant. The old wine stands for the grace of the old covenant. Now you might be thinking, there's no grace in the old covenant, but there was. There, there was. Paul says in Romans that there was much benefit to being a Jew under the Old Covenant. There was the grace of being redeemed out of Egypt. There was the grace of the revelation of God's law. There was the grace of being related to the patriarchs and to the covenants. But the grace of the Old Covenant was primarily a grace of promise. It was a grace of promise. It was a grace that pointed beyond itself. True grace, but it was the grace of the Old Covenant. And, and this grace from the Old Covenant was captured in old wineskins. So, so old wine in old wineskins. What are the old wineskins? Well, the old wineskins stand for the means of that grace. The means through which that grace was communicated to God's people. How did God's people Israel receive the grace of the Old Covenant? And here's how. Through the tabernacle and the temple. They received it because God dwelt among his people in a central location in the most holy place. God, God was with his people in the tabernacle in the temple. And they would go to that temple to draw near to God. And at that temple there was a priesthood serving. 
and this priesthood stood as intermediaries between God and man. They would pray for the people. And then this priesthood would offer sacrifices for the people. So there were sacrifices that communicated grace. And the sacrifices, God would, God would pronounce the people forgiven of their sins through the offering of these sacrifices, saying that their sins were put onto the animal in their place. And there was the grace of things like circumcision, whereby a, a, a person was marked as part of God's covenant people. The grace of the Passover, where they remembered God's redemptive acts. And the grace of prayer and fasting, where people would, would be able to come to God and he would hear their voice. So, so the old wine of the old covenant, the, the, the grace of the old covenant, came to God's people through all of these things. The tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, circumcision, Passover, prayer, fasting. And now Jesus is saying there's new wine. There's new wine to drink. And this new wine is the grace of the new covenant. It's the grace of the new covenant. You don't need to turn there, but in Amos chapter 9, there's another passage that describes this, this day that is coming, this, this day that the prophets are always pointing to, that God's going to, to bring his promises to pass. And, and here's how Amos describes this day. He says, the mountains will flow with wine. And your vineyards will be fruitful. And you're, you're just going to be drinking wine continually. That's what he says. It's just this, this picture of, of, of fullness and joy as, as the mountains flow with wine. Here's Jesus saying, the, I'm the bridegroom and I've come and there's new wine to drink. He's saying the new covenant is here. The new covenant is here because I'm here. And the question is, what are the new wineskins? You need new wineskins for new wines. He's saying you can't put this new covenant grace into the structures of tabernacle and priests and sacrifices and circumcision and Passover and fasting. It doesn't work. You can't put this new grace into those old wineskins. You need new wineskins. So what are the new wineskins? What are, what are the means through which this new covenant grace is communicated to us? What is the new wineskin for this new wine? We, you hear that phrase, right? The means of grace. And traditionally, the means of grace, we, we, we've talked about them before, have been the Word of God, prayer, and the ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Word of God, prayer, and the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the means of grace that, that the church has believed in. And, and they, they are, but this morning we need to press into that a little bit. Because here's the thing. Many people and many churches engage in these things and yet they never taste the grace of the new covenant. Many people read their Bibles and hear sermons from the Bible, and they, and, and they pray, they might even fast, and, and, and they were baptized, and they take communion, and they know nothing of the grace of the new covenant. Why not? These are means of grace, and here's, here's the answer, because these things in and of themselves do not communicate grace. They are only means of grace when they are centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. These things only communicate the grace of the new covenant to us when they're centered on Jesus. Jesus is the new wineskin. Think about this. Jesus is the new wineskin. Think, uh, th there's a continuity here, right? The old wineskins, tabernacle, priesthood, sacrifices, circumcision, Passover. Jesus fulfills every one of those things. Jesus is the new tabernacle. 
We don't need to go to a temple to meet with God. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is God with us. He's the presence of God with us. And when he ascended to heaven, he sent his spirit into our hearts. And now that if you are a Christian, you are a temple. Jesus is in you and we come together, we are a temple. But it's all centered on the presence of Jesus. He's the new temple. Jesus is the new priest. The whole priesthood has become obsolete because Jesus is our great priest over the house of God. He's the one mediator between God and man. He intercedes for us before the throne of God and he offers the sacrifice for us. And what is the sacrifice? It's him. Jesus is the new sacrifice. He offers himself as a perfect lamb without spot or blemish to take away our sins once and for all. Jesus is the new circumcision. We don't need a physical, external circumcision. We need a circumcision of our hearts that Jesus does inside of us through his death on the cross. He regenerates our hearts and makes us new. And that's pictured through baptism, which shows our union with this Jesus in his death and resurrection. Jesus came and he instituted a new meal. At the Passover, he, he instituted the Lord's Supper and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember my death uh, on the cross. Remember my blood spilled out. Remember my redemption. Jesus is the new focus of prayer and fasting. We pray in Jesus' name. We pray in light of Jesus as the bridegroom. Jesus is the new wineskin through which we receive the grace of God, the grace of the new covenant. And listen, this means that if you want to drink of that wine, if you want to drink of this new covenant grace, then you must continually recenter on Jesus, the bridegroom. You cannot taste the grace of God outside of Jesus. Amen. You must taste it in Jesus alone. And real practically then, when you read your Bible, read until you discover and behold the glory of Christ in that reading. When you sing together, when we teach, when we preach, Christ must be the subject of our songs and of our prayers and of our sermons. When we celebrate baptism, we need to celebrate Christ in that baptism and his death and his resurrection. When we take communion, we must remember Christ in that. And when we pray and fast, we must do so in light of the bridegroom who has come and is coming again. If we do these things, then we will taste the grace of the new covenant. Only when we center on Jesus. This is what Reformation is all about, church. The Roman Catholic Church prayed. And they, they preached in Latin, but they preached. They, they took communion, right? But, but what was the problem? The problem was they'd lost Jesus in it. They lost Jesus in those things. They lost the gospel in those things. So Luther wasn't protesting just the forms so much. He was saying, he was saying we need to remember all of this is about Jesus, and what he's done as, as the covering, as our righteousness, he's not just a patch on our good work, he's our righteousness. He's the new wine, he's the bridegroom. It's all about him. Reformation is all about not just recovering certain practices, but recentering on Jesus Christ. And this is why the phrase always, this is what always reforming means. It means we're always coming back to Jesus. We are like cars that are just a little bit out of alignment, right? And you know when you're driving a car that's out of alignment, you just, if you let go of the wheel, what's going to happen? You're just going to start moving that way. And, and that's our hearts, right? Like when, when we don't intentionally recenter ourselves on Jesus, we automatically go the wrong way. 
We need to recenter ourselves on Jesus every single day in every religious thing that we might do. It needs to be about him. This is what the Reformation is all about. This is what Redeemer is all about. One of our statements that we read once a month is this. I commit to focus my heart, my mind, and my life on the person and work of Jesus who is the center of Christian worship. This is who we are, church. We are a Christ-centered church because we want to taste this new wine. We want to drink of this new delicious wine that satisfies the soul, and we can only do that by continually recentering ourselves on the person and work of Jesus. So I want to urge you and call you, church, when you open your Bible tomorrow, look for Jesus. When we come together to sing, sing to Jesus. When you pray, pray in light of who Jesus is. Everything we do, let's center ourselves on Jesus. As we sing now, I want to invite you to focus your mind, heart, and life on Jesus Christ, our bridegroom. And as we sing, to enjoy the new wine of God's grace in him.